My name is John Cullen, and I want to tell you a story. It's a story about a scandal, broken relationships, gossip, rumors, money, corporate rivalry, and curling. It's the story of Broomgate, how a single broom, yes, a broom, turned friends into foes and almost killed the 500-year-old sport of curling. It was a year I'd like to forget. Broomgate, available now. You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production. You have seen them carrying our flag and covered in glory. Confetti raining down on the world's biggest stage. Conquering heroes, the ultimate champions. The best, bar none, in the world. You may also have seen them working at places like Home Depot, dragging their bags off a rickety bus into a tiny arena in a bare locker room, begging for sponsorships to travel and train, speaking sadly after yet another attempt to give the best women's hockey players in the world just a place to play professionally has collapsed. The past few weeks, though, has changed all that dramatically. The way like the crowd reacted when we came on the ice um, was really cool. I think just to have that atmosphere. Felt pretty surreal, you know, seeing the full sold out crowd and to see all those young girls in the stands. Thousands made their way here to the Verdun Auditorium Saturday afternoon. A sold out crowd cheering on Montreal's professional women's hockey league team, our PWHL, and their exhilarating home opener against Boston. The Professional Women's Hockey League, the PWHL, is not the first attempt at a professional women's hockey league, but it's the first one that feels different in so many ways. How far has this game come? How different is this league? How do we know it won't end the same way? Well, for one, if you live in a city with a PWHL team, Go and try to get yourself a ticket right now. I dare you. See how it goes. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. This is The Big Story. Maithri Anantharaman is a reporter with Defector.com. Hey, Maithri. Hi, thanks for having me. Oh, you are most welcome. Thanks for joining us. And I'm so glad we get to talk about the finally a real professional women's hockey league today. Yes, it's been a long time in the making. Your piece took a look at how the collective bargaining for the league came together. Um, But one thing that it also did so well was illustrate just how far these women have come. And maybe uh, one of the anecdotes that I thought illustrated it so well, you could just explain for us in the new collective bargaining agreement There is a clause about what happens to players' bags in transport. Can you explain what that clause is and why it's necessary? Sure. Uh, It's a clause in the CBA's section on travel and lodging. A a collective bargaining agreement gets very granular about the working conditions of players. So this section deals with everything from the, the maximum distance players would travel by bus as opposed to plane when they're going to away games, the quality of hotel they'll need to stay at. The bags on buses clause essentially says that players in this league 
don't have to sit next to their gear when they travel by bus, that they're not going to be crammed into a seat with a giant hockey bag next to them. And I assume this was necessary because this kind of stuff was happening all the time. Yes, it's, I think it's one of many clauses um, whose specificity tells a bit of a story about conditions that players in this league are used to. PWHL players, when they talk about this labor agreement and the standards in this league, of course, they talk about things like pay and benefits. Um, but they also are thrilled about things like this, things we probably take for granted in other professional sports that this group of players really does not. I would love to see like an NHL player read this CBA and read these little clauses and react to what has to be stipulated in this kind of agreement. Yeah. Um, one thing I, I did when I wrote this story is I talked with Brian Burke, who is going to be the executive director of the Players Union. And he's someone who's been kind of an NHL lifer. He's had tons of front office experiences. And and he was just telling me about how um, eye-opening it was to be around the women's game when he was in an NHL front office. And he would go to Canadian Women's Hockey League games and and see their dressing rooms and see what they had to deal with um, and just just things that had never crossed his mind that that he assumed were taken care of at the NHL level that really just weren't in the women's game. You mentioned at the beginning, it's been a long time coming. How long has it been? How many attempts have there been previously to create a real professional women's hockey league? Yeah, it's a young sport in terms of its development. Of course, women have been playing hockey for a long time, but mostly at the amateur level or collegiately. Women's hockey only became a, an event sanctioned by the International Ice Hockey Federation and, and then by the Olympics in, in the 1990s. Um, and so the opportunities to play it and have some exposure were rare. And so I think once it did become an Olympic sport, then you did see a few attempts um, in the late 90s, the initial National Women's Hockey League. There was a Western Women's Hockey League in the early 2000s that didn't didn't really go anywhere. And so then there were a couple attempts after that that got us to where we are now. Um, but it's both been a long road and then also it's it's a young history. I won't ask you to describe every one of those leagues or those attempts, but I know you've spoken to a number of players um, who participated in them. And, you know, maybe just try to give us a sense of of what these players were paid, uh, what they were doing and how they were working uh, their participation in these leagues into their other jobs the rest of their lives. Like, give us a sense of that experience from the players' point of view. The The PWHL players who are in the league right now after they graduated college, they most of them had two options. There was the Canadian Women's Hockey League and the National Women's Hockey League, which was renamed the Premier Hockey Federation or the PHF. The Canadian Women's Hockey League, the CWHL, was primarily Canadian teams. They did have a team in Boston and the league essentially operated as a nonprofit. And, and that status allowed them certain funding opportunities, but it also closed off some funding opportunities. They couldn't really take on private investment. They didn't pay players salaries only in the last couple of years of the league. They start paying players um, stipends and and really that just covered the, the cost of equipment. We're talking a couple thousand dollars maybe. And anyone who's played hockey knows it's an expensive equipment intensive sport. And so players weren't necessarily breaking even. The National Women's Hockey League, what became the PHF was a later attempt to to professionalize women's hockey. It sort of was created as this U.S.-based alternative to the CWHL, one that wanted to pay players salaries and sometimes in the past didn't make good on those promises. The, the salaries were 
slashed very suddenly in the first couple of years of that league. And I think a lot of players in the league didn't feel like it was ever going to get to a point where that league could provide them with the facilities and could really meet the standards of women's hockey as they saw it. How cynical were some of these women or some of even just people who are huge fans of the women's game about the chance for something like the PWHL to come together? Right. I think it's it's hard to have trust when you've been in a position where you're not getting paid well, you're not getting treated well, your salary is cut in the middle of the night. It's hard to have trust. I think that's true of of these players and true of many athletes in women's sports who have had to deal with just unsatisfactory conditions for for a long time in their career. And so I think that cynicism is what pushed them to insist on a a collective bargaining agreement and and a union. It's so they could protect themselves because they know what happens if you're not protected. That's one of the things that is so fascinating to me about uh, this new league and how it came about. And in my you know, former life as a sports journalist, we covered the Canadian women's team. And it always floored me to see these women then, you know, go back and and take part-time jobs because of the conditions that they're dealing with. The PWHL came along after a number of women's players, some of the greats of the game, already formed a union. So tell me how this works. What is the PWHPA? Where did it come from? And uh, why is it so unique to do things in this order? You're right. It's a strange order. It's not something we see in sports a lot. In 2019, the CWHL folds. And at that point, that's where um, a pretty big concentration of Canadian Olympians and and also the, the American U.S. Olympians are playing. And Many of them left the NWHL after the the salary cuts because they they weren't happy with conditions in this league because they weren't happy with the way it was being called professional but maybe acting in a different way. And so what they decided, what that group of players decided, this was um, a couple hundred players. It was all of the members of the U.S. and Canadian national teams who are not in college decided was that they weren't going to play in in any North American league for a year until they felt like there was an option for them that met their standards in terms of facilities, in terms of pay, in terms of who was running the league. And so that group was called the Professional Women's Hockey Players Association, PWHPA. And so they spent the next couple of years trying to create that alternative, trying to create an option that they really believed in. And so when they did eventually find an investor, they were pretty easily able to convert that into an actual union to sign union cards and to get their CBA negotiating. So that's that was sort of the origins of what eventually became the union. In terms of the order, I think it was beneficial to both sides, to to labor and to management, right? If you're a player, you want certain guarantees, you've been sacrificing lots of years of your your prime for this league. And, and you need to know that things will be taken care of. Your pay will not be cut in the middle of the night. You are going to play in professional facilities. The, the right people are going to be running teams and leagues. And so that's what they insisted on. And so in the in the summer, players were able to to ratify a collective bargaining agreement, a group of 
players sat on uh, an executive committee and, and negotiated with ownership, was able to articulate exactly what they wanted to speak from the heart about uh, lifestyle issues, about their experiences in hockey and you know why they needed certain things, why they needed to not have their bags next to them on the bus, right? And so that's kind of how, how it came together. What about the money side of things? Uh, you mentioned they finally found an investor. Uh, where's the money coming from? And how do we know? How did they know that this time was going to be different? Yeah. So the the investor, it's, it's a single ownership investor. Um, maybe in other sports, there are multiple owners and then a commissioner. But this is just a single investor. And it's Mark Walter, who's the controlling owner of the Los Angeles Dodgers, it's pretty deep pockets, which I think helps them feel a little bit more comfortable. They they know that he's good for the money and, and that it's not going to run out anytime soon. My name is John Cullen, and I want to tell you a story. It's a story about a scandal, broken relationships, gossip, rumors, money, corporate rivalry, and curling. It's the story of Broomgate, how a single broom, yes, a broom, turned friends into foes and almost killed the 500-year-old sport of curling. It was a year I'd like to forget. Broomgate, available now. Was there a moment when it became clear either to the players when they tell you about it or to the people who follow the women's game closely that this league was for real, that it was really going to happen and soon and there was big money behind it and this wasn't a pipe dream anymore. Yeah, I, I think you'd have to ask the players and, and you get different answers from them. You get different answers from the same players. If you ask them a couple of times, I know um, Jocelyn LaRock, I remember her saying at the at the PWHL draft, like now it finally feels real. And then I talked to her a few weeks later at preseason evaluation camp, and she's saying it finally feels real now. Right. <laughs> um, and so so I mean, for some of these players who have just waited for so long, I think it is surreal. It is a, a real pinch me moment for a lot of them. But I think for me, it was it was getting to, to watch them play in games. Um, I think for some of them, it was um, coming to their home openers, which which have been sold out at a lot of cities. And and seeing the crowd and putting on a jersey and, and feeling like, OK, this is my life now. We could have done an entire episode on the logistics involved here. But tell me about how you go from an agreement to create a league to launching a league in like six months. That seems impossible in modern sports. Yes, it's, it's a pretty crazy timeline, even an expansion team in an existing league is usually like a two, three year process, right? Um, and so to to start an entire league in, in six months is pretty nuts. I totally agree. And certainly there were there were trade-offs. I think when you are working with that timeline, you have to prioritize what's important to you. And I think that uh, management and the players did. They decided what was important to them was getting the CBA and those labor protections in place. It was staffing and hiring, making sure that there were people who were running this league who who knew what they were doing, who were full-time employees, who were experts in, in their subject, whether it's being a goalie coach or whether it's finding sponsors, um, things like that, that just had never existed in, in past leagues. And in the past, a lot of that stuff was ad hoc or volunteer. And, and so 
it's really important to the players that they have a staff around them who's helping them to succeed. And then some other things they decided were less of a priority, right? Team names. The teams don't have names. That's just something they decided, given the timeline, was an issue they were going to wait until later to work on um, jerseys, right? They're all playing with sort of temporary jerseys. And so you you have to pick and choose what you make perfect when you're operating with a, a six-month timeline. I think it's it's gone well. I think players know what's important to them. And it's it's the staff, it's the labor protections, it's things like proper medical care, uh, making sure that the, the sport they play, which is a dangerous, risky sport, um, that they're they're going to be safe when they play it and and taken care of. And so it it's not perfect. I think all the players know that not everything is 100% yet, but they all feel like it's moving in the right direction. It's everyone's heart is in the right place and they're willing to kind of give the league some grace as a result. How have the returns been so far in terms of fan interest? You mentioned uh, some of the home openers were sold out. I should say I stupidly waited uh, too long to try to get tickets in Toronto. They're all gone. It's sold out in Toronto for the rest of the regular season, at least. They are. I think in the near future, they're probably going to have some conversations about moving to a bigger rink because uh, those those Toronto tickets got snapped up in in Minnesota. They they sold uh, I think thirteen thousand tickets to to the home opener and and they're playing in in an NHL arena. They play where the Wild play in Ottawa. It's it's been a, a great market. The games I watched on TV, it looks like the crowd is really into it. Montreal, they just played a game in Laval yesterday, and and I was watching the the crowd there, and it it just looked packed. And so yeah, I think the attendance has been great, especially in Canadian markets, um, and then on TV as well. They have regional sports network deals with with the U.S. markets, and then some additional deals with CBC and um, TSN and Sportsnet. The inaugural game that was um, in Toronto. Uh, the league said that it reached something like three million uh, Canadian viewers across across three networks, and so there's there's a lot of interest. For those unfamiliar about sports TV rating, like three million across Canada, it's equivalent to like a Blue Jays playoff game here. Like this is not a novelty here, which I think has I think everybody who follows the game and loves the game understood that it's not because the fans are so passionate. But I think to see those numbers and to see the sellouts going up on the board maybe pushes some people towards uh, gaining the kind of momentum that it will need to sustain, right, my three? Because there will be a point that the initial uh, interest wears off and the league will need a devoted fan base that's loyal. Yes, I, th- I think that's a, a good point. There is a history, especially in women's sports, of new leagues getting a lot of great press and hype in their first and second year. Um, this is especially true of the WNBA, um, when the NBA put a ton of money into marketing and promoting it in the first couple seasons, and then not being able to really sustain that momentum or stopping the investment. And so you're right. I think making sure that they are reaching as as wide an audience as possible right now in these early years is going to set it up for the future. Something I think they do that is really smart is every game, you can watch any game on YouTube. The league streams every game. The broadcasts are are high quality and professional and free. 
easily accessible. And and that's important in the early stages, right, is just getting people in front of your product. How do we really know that this will be different from past attempts in terms of that staying power? And especially here, I guess I'm I'm talking about finances. We know the owner has the money to continue, like the actual possession of the cash is not the problem. But if the league does run into a dry patch or is unprofitable or trends downward, you know, what assurances do the players have? Does the union have that it can weather that kind of storm? Like every league does have those lulls in fan interest or just revenue. Right. So I would point first to the term of the collective bargaining agreement, which is an eight-year deal, um, which is on the longer side. And that was a, a point in the negotiations. What, How long should this deal last? And so with an eight-year deal, the players assume some risk. This is a high growth environment for women's sports. We're seeing really high valuations and expansion fees for WNBA and NWSL franchises, You know, really dramatic increases in, in the broadcast deals. Some Women's sports media properties are getting the the NWSL just signed a pretty big one, the NCAA women's basketball tournament. And so if everything goes really well with the PWHL, maybe it looks like the league has outgrown this deal in five years. But there's also some certainty that comes with an eight-year deal. And that's that's the other side, right? Ownership has committed to making eight years of this league work. And eight years is, I think, a good amount of time to to really build a foundation. And, and the players have eight years of certainty also. Maithri, thank you so much for this. Um, it's so nice to have a real success story in the women's game to talk about. Have you been to a game yet? I have not. Um, I've, I've only been to some preseason games, have watched a ton on TV. But if I can get a ticket, I'm looking forward to going. That's how I feel too. Thanks again for this. Thanks so much. My three Anantharaman, reporter at Defector.com. That was The Big Story. For more, you can head to thebigstorypodcast.ca. Shout out to one of our listeners, Pia, who would not rest until we covered the PWHL. This one is for you. You can request an episode yourself. The way to get in touch with us is via email, hello at thebigstorypodcast.ca, or by calling us up and chatting on a voicemail, 416-935-5935. This podcast is available in every single podcast player, and of course, it's on your smart speaker. Just ask the thing to play The Big Story Podcast. Joe Fish is the lead producer of The Big Story. Robin Simon is also a producer, as is this week, Aparta Bandari. Stephanie Phillips is our showrunner. Mark Angley handled our sound design this week. Diana Kay is our manager of business development. Mary Jubrin is our digital editor altogether. We are the Frequency Podcast Network, which is a division of Rogers. And of course, I'm your host and also your executive producer, Jordan Heath-Rawlings. Thank you so much for listening. Have a great weekend. We'll talk Monday. My name is John Cullen, and I want to tell you a story. It's a story about a scandal, broken relationships, gossip, rumors, money, corporate rivalry, and curling. It's the story of Broomgate, how a single broom, yes, a broom, turned friends into foes and almost killed the 500-year-old sport of curling. It was a year I'd like to forget. Broomgate, available now.